John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Seven words. That's all that are given to us to describe one of the most horrible tortures that man has ever inflicted upon another man. Seven words. And they flogged him. The Jewish law, as given to us in Deuteronomy 25.3, prohibited anyone ever receiving more than 39 lashes. But these were not Jews. And the instrument that they used in flogging was a much more mean and effective tool of pain and torture. The flagella that the Romans had developed was not like the whip that we used to, to move animals with. It had, it had a handle, a wood handle, and long leather straps bound to it. And at the end of these straps were a mixture of glass shards embedded in it, sharp metal barbs wrapped around it, and pieces of bone impaled in it just for good measure. And the flogging, that was done in public. The victim was stripped completely naked, tied across or to a pole. And then a soldier who had been specifically trained to use that flagella with great skill would strike that person with it, allowing the weighted leather straps to inflict their welt upon his back. And then he would pull that those straps across the body of that person, allowing the metal, the glass, and the bones to rip the skin of the victim. The church historian Eusebius recorded this for us. They said about this, he said, they say that the bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw the lacerated um, and scourges even to the innermost veins and arteries so that the hidden inward parts of the body both their bowels and their members were exposed to view. This is what happened in those seven words. And saints, this should be you. This should be me. We should be the ones that are stripped naked, publicly tied to a pole, and then beaten within an inch of our life. And as horrible as that was, it was merely the beginning. And in no way made restitution for our sin. And Pilate had found nothing wrong with Jesus. He had proclaimed him innocent of any wrongdoing back in chapter, or verse 38 of chapter 18. The flogging of innocent men wasn't uncommon for Romans. They often did that just to ensure that the people that they ruled over would fall in line and stay in line. And the soldiers who were idly hanging around watching all of these events go on, decided that it wasn't enough to perform the task that they were being given. They decided to mock the people that they had been sent to rule over. The Jews who thought that they were so different, who were so proud of their national heritage and religious belief. So they decided to have some fun with this man and humiliate the Jews at the same time. Verses 2 and 3. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him, struck him with their hands. Jesus, the true king. These soldiers would have been play acting with Jesus as a center of their mockery. Here, they've adorned him with the vestiges of royalty, a crown for his head, 
a purple cloak for his back. And then they would have presented themselves before him, one at a time. They would have kneeled before him as they proclaimed, Hail, King of the Jews. And then instead of kissing his ring, they would have slapped him with their hands or hit him with a rod, as told to us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. They must have been told, or they must have overheard the conversation between Jesus and Pilate when Jesus told them that his kingdom is not of this world, and they mocked him for this. How could they, mere foot soldiers, bind, strip, and beat a king with such ease and without any retribution? But they had no idea that they all would, would one day face this very man as told to us in Philippians 2. When we're told that so that every knee, uh, the, at, I'm sorry, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under heaven and earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But this man standing there didn't fit the job description that any of these people had for king, or in fact God either. He was not the man that they would have chosen. He was not what they desired in their lives. Their idea of a king was someone who would rule proudly over them, who would proudly represent them, who would bring about the kingdom that they desired. And this man was none of those things. But he was the reigning king. And the Romans, after they had conquered a people, they would enter into that city into what they called a triumph. A triumph with a parade, a gruesome, ghastly parade that was led by their king, Caesar, who would be adorned in gold and jewels, flowing robes, either seated on a magnificent war horse or standing in a magnificent chariot, a symbol of his might and his power. Then would come the legions of soldiers, all arrayed in their finest uniforms. And behind them would come the bloody, beaten captives, the former leaders of these bloody, beaten people who were now under the rule of this king. This was the idea of what a king was supposed to be like to these people. And this is still the idea of what a king should be like for us as well. We desire our king to rule and conquer as we deem right. What would be best for us? And this is why the soldiers mocked and beat the Christ. But he is the true king. He is the ruler over all people for all time. And if we are to be of this king, we must fall in line with him, as we are told in scriptures. Again, Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, is there any encouragement in Christ? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, other, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And we think that the greatest humiliation of Christ came here on this day as he stood there. And we forget the reality of the humbling that happened 
in him stepping down from eternity and becoming a man. And this was not just one small step for man and one large step for mankind. This was a leap that no man could have ever made. And those Philippians verses go on about his humility. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has exalted him highly and bestowed on him the name that, every, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the king that we must submit to, and we must follow. And just as that Roman king would enter into a conquered city, rule over a conquered nation, Jesus does the same thing, and we are in that triumph with him. Paul grabs hold of this reality, the reality of the Passover land and the price paid to save sinners from themselves and to God. He does this in Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. There he begins first by warning us about being conformed to the world and allowing the spirit of this age to control our minds. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then beginning in verse 9, he tells us why we should not allow these things to hold sway over thinking. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Can you hear that kingdom language in those verses? Paul knew that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He is head of, over all. He is the rule and authority. And the shocking thing is that we have been filled in him. How can this be, you wonder? I don't feel like this is true. I don't feel like this is even a reality. But beginning in verse 11, Paul tells us that feelings don't trump fact. He says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of flesh, by circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. I have a question for you. Have you been raised with Christ? Have you been given eyes to see who and what you are, a sinner that has offended a holy God and in need of a Savior? Have you been given ears to hear as the gospel is preached that Jesus is Lord? And has your heart soared when you hear this truth? Know that there is hope only in him. And then fled with reckless abandon into his arms. Have you obeyed, confessed with your mouth, and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord? Submitted to his lordship through baptism? If so, then this is your reality. No matter how you feel. And then beginning in verse 13, Paul once again highlights the fact that you didn't choose Christ. You didn't make a good decision. You merely obeyed. When he said, in you, who were dead in trespasses and the circumcision of your, of your flesh, God made alive with him, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. And then finally, in verse 15, Paul takes us to that parade of parades. When he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And this isn't the only time that Paul grasped this reality of this triumph, tells us of this reality. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 17, he tells us, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Here again, we're taken to that parade of praise. But here Paul tells us that we are more than just attendees of this parade. We are participants, and even more than participants. We are the means, the tools, the symbols that demonstrate the preeminence of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 15, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Saints, I have to be honest with you. You stink. In fact, you smell pretty bad. Do you realize this, though? We all try to cover up to mask our body aroma, especially as the temperature climbs like this morning. But the aroma that Paul is speaking of here can't be masked or covered up. In fact, we should try to make sure that it is easily smelt. The aroma that Paul is speaking of here is that of death. Have you ever smelled death? Because it has a very, a very special smell. Nothing else smells quite like it. It's repulsive and offensive. But instead of following the lead of Paul in this triumph, instead of being life to life and death to death, the aroma of Christ, we would rather much live by, well, we need to be all things to all men that we might save some. After all, that is scripture, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 9.22. And we use this verse, that verse, as a perfume that is poured over us as we try to mask the death smell of Christ on us from the world. Because we don't want them to hate us. We don't want them to persecute us. We want them to like us and even accept us. But not so that we can save some of them, but so that we can save ourselves from persecution and humiliation. Because if we truly loved them, if we truly cared about them, then we would make sure that they smelled the death on us and then tell them of the one who causes us to stink so good. We like the thought of being in that parade of parades as long as we are dressed in fine clothing and acting the part of a conquering hero. But we don't like, we don't desire to stand alongside of the king of kings as he's being beaten flogged, mocked, and ridiculed. Paul realized this fact. He was witness to those that would try to clean up this Jesus. 
try to mop up the blood that surround his beaten, bruised body in order to sanitize the message of the gospel, which is why he finishes speaking of the reality of the true triumph that the true king of kings is ushering in as he stood there, bloodied, beaten, and still triumphant. In verse 17 of Colossians 2, when he says, For we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Saints, we need to hold on to this verse. And we need to realize that there are men and women out there that desire the office of pastor. And they desire the title Christian. But they only do it for earthly gain. And you're going to know them by their fruits. You will know them by whose kingdom they're desiring to build. You will know them by which Jesus they preach and hold on to. The one that will give you your best life now, or the one that will you demand that you come and die alongside of him. The one that is now standing, beaten to within an inch of his life, bloodied, hurting, alone, and mocked as a king of Jews, but who is in fact king of the universe. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Pilate now moves back out to the crowd that had gathered outside of his palace. He moves off of his couch where he had been relaxing, drinking an iced tea, eating some grapes, refreshing himself while his men tired themselves out by beating the living daylights out of this man. The man that he himself who he so self-righteously proclaims has done nothing to deserve the treatment that he has now given that man. And then in verse 5, he motions for Jesus to be forced to walk out of the palace in front of that mob. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Jesus is the second Adam. He is the man. Pilate had this man brought out before these people, hoping that the sight of his pain and torture would produce empathy, sympathy, compassion, something. After all, these were his people, as told to us in John 1.11, when it says he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. But his own people had no compassion on him, no sympathy for him, They only had hate and malice for him. And the description of this man is given to us in Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, is spot on. When it says, Who has believed what we have heard, who has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Behold the man. This isn't the first time within the Gospel of John that attention was drawn to Jesus. Focus was made to bear upon him by that word, behold. We hear it first in John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And the Gospel of John isn't the first book that drew attention to a man with that word, behold. That happens back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 22, when God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us and is knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground which he was taken he was taken from. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That use, that term, the man, is purposeful. God knew the name of that man. He had given that man that name. And just as that word behold is purposely used here, so too is the term the man. This man. The original, sinless, perfect man, Adam, had alienated himself, killed himself because of the sin of self. And he had to be driven out of the original garden, away from the tree of life. He had to die. He was already dead in his spirit, but in his flesh he had to die. He had to die in order that he could be redeemed by the Lamb of God, who liked this original man also had to die. And when Pilate proclaimed, behold the man as he brought Jesus out, we are meant to see him alongside of our federal head, Adam, and even ourselves. He stood there, beaten, bloodied, and mocked. And he stood there in our place because we have stood in the place of God. And for that reason, we had to be cast out of the garden, cast out of the presence of God, cast out of our former home, our former home, in order that we could be reconciled back to the Father by the sinless sacrifice of this, the second Adam. And when the sons of the first man, Adam, saw that second Adam, they all acted in unison. They were all together for their gospel. They were united in their religion. They said in verse 6, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. They had no love for this man, the second Adam. And this is the third time that Pilate has said he has not found guilt in this man. And yet he was afraid to act. Even though he had the power, he had the authority to shove this crowd out and save this man, the one who he has said is innocent. And he didn't. He didn't stand for Jesus because he stood for himself. And here he thought that he had thrown the ball back into the court of the religious leaders, that he had absolved himself of all responsibility of this matter, until he heard verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. What the religious leaders had said back to Pilate was that he, this man, had in fact broke their law by in making himself out to be the king. But he, Pilate, had to crucify him because he, Jesus, made himself out to be the king of kings which would be a threat to the Roman rule. And this terrified Pilate. 
And verse 8 is meant to give us insight into the mind of Pilate. Because our focus throughout this time has been on the outside of Pilate. And our focus at this, uh, throughout this whole thing has been on Jesus as well. As it should be. But we should do this. We should focus on Christ, but not to the exclusion of the people that are also there. And at the same time, it's been rightly stated that we should never take Scripture out of context, nor should we try to make it about us when it's not about us. Like how people love to take Jeremiah 29, 11 out of context and personalize it for themselves. You know that verse. For I know that I have the plans for you, declares Yahweh, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. And unless you've had your nation thrown down, your relatives killed, your wife raped, your children taken away from you, and then been sent into exile to live for years in a foreign land, under foreign rule, unless that describes you, that Jeremiah 29, 11 verse is not and should not be your life verse. But as we read this encounter, hear this section of Scripture read and preached, we should take a moment and get inside the heads of the people there. You should find yourself in this event. Get into the head and the heart of the people there. You want to try and find yourself in Jesus but somehow you know that you can't do that because most of us here can't even relate to the pain and anguish and, phys and physical and emotional torture that he was going through. But every one of us can relate 100% to everyone else there because they are us and we are them. We are those religious leaders who will not have this man rule over them. We are those Roman soldiers who can make a mockery of the Son of God and we are Pilate, who even though he knows the right thing to do, he is so terrified of men, so in love with his own comfort, that he won't act. But you're thinking, but Pilate did act. He did try to act, at least. I mean, we've got verses 9 and 10, where it says, He entered his, his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? The events of this entire encounter have all been from the point of view from the outside of Pilate. Now it moves to the inside of Pilate, into his mind. Verse 8 gives us access to the mind and emotions of Pilate. And the question asked by Pilate seems to be genuine. He seems to be really reaching out. He seems to be seeking Shouldn't we be seeker-sensitive? But Jesus has already answered this question. He had answered all questions. He had given all testimony, all the facts that were needed for this man and all men. He had told Pilate back in verse 37 of chapter 18, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Wait, you're thinking, that's not a clear answer. I mean, when someone is seeking, we really need to work with those guys. Yeah, they're a bit off base. Yeah, maybe they compromise a bit, but they claim to believe. Isn't that enough? They seem to be really seeking. 
So we need to compromise, bring them along slowly, give them little bites of the truth, you know, like little Jesus bites, and, until they finally get it. Do you remember the answer that Pilate gave to Jesus when he told Pilate that he came to bear witness to the truth? Verse 38, Pilate said, what is truth? Pilate was not seeking. Pilate was judging. And no one else is seeking either, no matter what you want to believe. Romans 3.11 tells us no one understands, no one seeks for God, which is why we need to emulate our king in the presentation of the gospel. We should not soften the edges for seekers. We should not pretty up this bloody and bruised demanding king to appease those that are desiring to accept their version of him. We need to tell them the truth. Tell them of the truth. Tell them the reality of truth. And that truth is not a what, but a who. The truth is God, a God that reigns supreme, that demands allegiance and obedience. A good God that loves, that gives, that makes a way by being the way. Tell them that they cannot love God and be Christian and belong to a church that has a female pastor. They cannot be of God. They cannot be a Christian and belong to a church that claims homosexuality is not a sin. That tells people that Jesus loves you just as you are. That's not truth. And that's not Jesus. Jesus tells Pilate in verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. The answer by Jesus, this is the last thing that we are to hear him say until he has been crucified, is to tell this man truth. That he would have no authority if it were not for the one that stood there, bloodied and beaten, the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. And this king is not absolving Pilate of his sin. He is merely stating that the one who delivered him had even the greater sin. So who is this one that Jesus is speaking about? Is it the high priest? Judas? Satan? Yeah? And no? We need to think bigger. We need to think broader. Think how all this began. It was Adam who delivered Jesus over. He was the one who chose himself over this man. He was the one who could walk in the cool of the day with God, with this man, enjoy sweet fellowship with him, see him face to face, and still choose himself over this man. But before we get all judgy on Adam, you need to realize that you would have done the same thing. Beginning in verse 12, though, the focus shifts back outside of the praetorium. We find ourselves back out in the early morning sunshine, back out with that crowd that's anxiously awaiting what, how these proceedings are going to end. In verse 12, we're told, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
We're not told why that crowd of religious leaders knew that Pilate was wavering in his decision concerning this man. We only know that they did, which is why they said what they did. And that term, Caesar's friend, was one that was given to those that were part of Caesar's inner circle, those that were close to him, who were once or who were given a high office, one that represented Caesar. And Pilate had entered into this circle of friendship with Caesar at some point in his life, which is the evidence by the station that he held. And this was the leverage that the Jewish leaders were now bringing to bear on this man. A man who was seemingly beginning to waver in fulfilling their desire to crucify this man. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement, an Aramaic Gabbatha. And it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus, the Passover lamb. Jesus had said of the nation Israel in Isaiah 43.1, but, but now thus says Yahweh, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, o, o Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. But by their own admission in verse 12, they proved that they weren't his. They may have been part of the physical nation Israel. They may have been children of that physical man Abraham, but they were not part of the spiritual, the true Israel of God, the true children of God. Not yet, anyway. They have now aligned themselves with Rome. And all this was happening at the Passover, which was the celebration of God freeing these people, separating them from the world and delivering them. And they've just proven that they weren't free, that they were still in bondage, and that they loved that bondage. And they were choosing within their free will to kill the one that could set them free. The father had, had set the children free once before by passing over them. This was the Passover, by becoming their redeemer. He had told them that in order to be set free, to be passed over, to not be judged, that they had to kill the Passover lamb and be covered by its blood in Exodus 12, 13. And verse 14 of our text today has given us to force us, to cause us to see Jesus, that bloodied, bruised, and beaten man that had been forced inside and outside, had been questioned, mocked, and then bloodied. A man who was still adorned with those mock vestiges of royalty, we are forced to see him for who he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb that was from the beginning, who was in that first garden with that first man, who created that first man with his own finger, knowing full well that in doing so, that act would bring him to this moment to this pain, to this agony. The lamb who instituted the Passover as a sign of the love of God for his own, as he made a way for the people to be redeemed. And as you sit here today, how do you see this man? Because those in that crowd only saw him as a poser, as an enemy, as someone that could be, should be mocked, is this how you see this man? 
Or have you been given eyes to see the truth? Do you see him as the Lamb of God that takes away your sin? Do you see yourself in Adam, knowing that you are that man? Have you been given ears to hear the truth of this second Adam, this man of sorrows, the Son of Man, that he's the only means to the Father? If so, then see him as the Lamb of God, who has now been prepared for the pass to be the Passover lamb. You may sit there and squirm because of the pain that Christ is going through. There may be a part of you that desires to cry out, no, concerning the mocking, the beating, and the torture. But he had to be prepared because we have sinned. He has to be beaten. He had to be bloodied because we have separated ourselves from our loving Father. He has to be accused of not being good, of not being holy, of not being sinless. He had to be beaten, tortured to, re- to prove and remain that he was sinless. Because you have been given him by his loving Father. And now in love, as a de- in, a des- in a demonstration of what, really lo- what love really looks like, he is now being prepared as your Passover lamb. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. Jesus the king. No matter why Jesus declared Jesus king, if he was trying to mock the Jews by presenting this torn, bloodied, and beaten man as the best that they had, or if he actually saw something within Jesus that caused him to say this, No matter the reason, there has never been a a more fitting statement made by a human. Behold your king. And for the first time, the Jews finally make a truthful statement. All along, they have hidden behind a facade of loving and worshiping God, keeping his Sabbath, his feast presenting offerings at his temple, and proclaiming to love and abide in his word. And it was always just for show. It was always about making a buck, about being able to keep and hold political power. And for the first time, these Jews proclaimed truth, that they are not Jews. They are not Israelites. They are not sons of Abraham, sons of God. They have no king but Caesar. They are Roman They are God-haters. And verse 16 ends this section of Scripture and moves us from the final acts of this mock trial to the beginning of the end. And in verse 16, there's only one person that's named, and it's Jesus. The who that handed this man over and the who that receives this man to crucify are nameless. And they're nameless because they are you and they are me. They're all of us. We all did this. 
And don't presuppose that this isn't true. Don't think so highly of yourselves that you don't think that you are Judas, that you wouldn't have been those that would mock Jesus as he is being crucified. In our old man, in the life that we lived before Christ, we hated God. Hated God? I didn't hate God. I didn't even think about him very much. Or you might be thinking, I didn't hate God. I just didn't like him. I didn't desire to obey him, read his word. But hate him? Nah. But that's not the truth. The truth of us is given to us in Romans 1, where God through Paul has this to say concerning all men. Verses 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. This is all men. And if you desire to see what it looks like for a people to be under the wrath of God, just read the rest of Romans 1. <coughs> Hang on a second, folks. Read Romans 1 and see where we are as a nation. But as Paul begins describing those that are, are under the wrath of God, he gives us a list of what those people are like, verses 30 and 31. He says, they're gossips, they're slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. But did you catch that third descriptor that he gave, that was given to us by Paul? The one that he seems like he should be the one that he was leading with. Haters of God. And in case you're wondering what insolent and haughty means, because those are words we don't use. Insolent means spiteful and insulting. And haughty means proud or conceited. No, dear ones, we, you and me, we would have been standing in that crowd, mocking the king of kings, calling for his death, and cheering when, he, when we got the verdict that we had been petitioning for, because we hated God. We would have been the ones that have been w openly working towards arresting him, of having him bound, having him slapped, kicked, and beaten, to the point that his internal organs can be seen as he stands there dripping blood with a crown of thorns crammed down on his forehead, purple robe draped across his bloodied, flesh-torn shoulders, gasping for breath because of the intensity of pain. Don't pretty this Jesus up and think that he's standing there as a macho man. We are the ones that finally speak truth. We have no God but Caesar. We hate God, and we hate him because he is holy, holy, holy. And we are wicked, vile, and dead. And we hate him because we're under his wrath and can do nothing else than hate him. Jesus is king. And Jesus is that man. He is the second Adam, fully human, just like us, the same as us. He had dreams. You have dreams. He had desires just like you do. He had hopes, just like the rest of us. He loved life. He marveled at sunrises and sunsets, just like we did. He laughed and he cried. 
And he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus is the man. And when the time came to choose between the gifts and the giver, when our federal head chose the gifts, when he chose himself and his wife over God and failed, Jesus rejected his own feelings, his own desire, and he submitted to the Father and in love chose him, and he succeeded. And because of that, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the Passover Lamb. Saints, we're given an amazing promise concerning this salvation that we have in Christ. Listen to John, 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, not some point in the future. If you have been redeemed, you are God's child now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. When we die, or if he returns before that, we won't be spirits floating on a cloud, playing harps and dressed in white dresses. We're going to be like Jesus after his resurrection, in his resurrected, eternal, infinite body. We're going to be perfect, just like Adam was in the garden. Does this mean that we will be that perfect version of ourselves? You know, that 25-year-old version, strong, no sagging skin, no wrinkles, no gray hair, no hurting body parts. Can't say about the no sagging skin or wrinkles or gray hair, but we won't have any hurting body parts. And we won't even have one single molecule of sin in us. And for this reason, we can't fathom what this is going to be like. But this is our blessed hope. Not hope like, I hope it's going to rain again, or I hope that I get that job, or I hope something else. This hope is certain. It's a fact. It's going to happen. But the reality is that when we see Jesus face to face, us standing there all pretty and gorgeous and perfect, He's not going to be. Listen to our hope. The reality of what is to come, given to us in Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written, written within and on, on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open its scroll and its seven seals. In rides our conquering hero, Jesus. Cue that hero music. Because Aslan, the lion, the conqueror, he's coming. And he's worthy. And he's not only worthy, but he's willing. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The resurrected body of Christ is perfect, just as ours will be. However, his perfect body contains the scars that were required to purchase you and me from our self-imposed slavery and death. He will for all eternity be the Lamb of God, not just the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. He will forever be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We will never sin again in our resurrected bodies, but we will weep at least one more time because of our sin when we see the reality of the price that was required to purchase us from our sin. Revelation 21, 3 through 7 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be there, will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seed, who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And the reality of this moment, the one that we're reading about today, of this, etern this eternity, and the reaction of those that are described for us back in Revelation 5, he says this, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp with, gold with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scrolls and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them say, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This, what is being described in Revelation, that, that I just read to you from Revelation, that's happening in our verses today. The people in the mob, they saw a pitiful excuse of a man that they would not have rule over them. And at the same time, in the heavenly, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he was reaching out and he was taking that scroll because he is worthy and he is proving his worth as he stood there. Saints, 
Behold the man. Behold the lamb and the king. Saints, behold your God who loves you and demonstrates that love for you as he stands there on that day, bloody, beaten, humiliated in his humanity. He's now been fully inspected as a lamb of God. And he's shown himself to be perfect, spotless, sinless. And even in the midst of the worst pain and torture, he remained that way. And as the lamb, he will bleed and he will die. This was, after all, the Passover. But we will not take his blood and place it over the doorposts of our house in order to be passed over. In the first Passover, the Lord told the Israelites that the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, Exodus 12, 13. Here, he takes that precious blood and bleeds it from the four corners of the heavenly dwelling, of our heavenly dwelling, his body. From his head, he bleeds, covering all the sins that you have ever thought. From the hands, he bleeds, covering all those sins of the things you've done. From his feet, he bleeds, covering all the sins that you have so willingly walked in. Because he is king of kings. When the full wrath and fury that is justly poured out on all who are sons of Adam, who have transgressed the perfect law of the Lord, when that wrath is poured out on this man, on this lamb, because he is the perfect spotless lamb of God that takes away the way the sin of the world, when he died, and because he was the man and the lamb, he rose from the grave and reigns forevermore, seated next to his father, always making intercession for the saints. Saints, I'm going to close with this. I want you to understand what that means when he says that he's seated next to the Father, making intercession for you. He's not standing next or seated next to his dad trying to explain away your sin. He's not up there going, yeah, I don't know how he got in here either. That's not what he's doing in making intercession for you. The Father is holy, holy, and holy. And he sees with perfect eyesight the reality of who you are and who I am. And for this reason, he hurls his wrath on us. Unless this man, the lamb that remains the lamb, stands between us and him, then the Father sees us in the lamb because we are in the lamb. And because we are in the lamb, we are spotless. We are sinless. Just as we will be when we see him face to face. This is the intercession that Jesus is making on behalf, on our behalf with the Father. None other is needed and none other will do because he is the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Don't rush past this moment. Don't turn your eyes from this ghastly scene. This ghastly scene is the reality of the love of God for you. The price paid in order for you to sit here today. Hearts torn. 
emotions raw over this reality, over the pain of your Jesus. This is the love of God for you. Saints, behold your God. Let's pray.